Church in Haynes Creek. Uh, we are a campus of First Baptist Church. Um, we kind of do our own thing out here on this hill. Uh, we, we're a, a close body of believers, and we gather every Sunday morning at 11 a.m., but we do have our own little traditions, and this is one of them, so welcome. I am a huge fan of Christmas movies. And I realized the other day that every Christmas movie that I love takes place in Chicago, oddly enough. I don't know why that is. Um, but I love old movies, new movies, not so much Hallmark movies, I'm sorry. Um, I'm making enemies tonight on that, I'm, I'm sure. Christmas Story is probably one of my favorites. Home Alone, Christmas Vacation is my favorite. Um, I mean, I'm talking like any of them. Some of the newer ones, my kids are addicted to Polar Express. And, um, well, I mean, everything is about Frozen right now. Um, but they have their own. I think It's a Wonderful Life, Elf. Um, I could go through them all. And one thing I've noticed about Christmas movies is there isn't really a Christmas movie where it doesn't have the theme of the family. Even It doesn't have to be a Christian movie at all. It's just the, the best Christmas movies that you can come up with the, the, the end goal of the movie is that the, the family is reunited or the family learns a moral lesson or somehow the family gets back together. Think about it. Every single Christmas movie, there's something about the family realizing that the family is important. Uh, more or less. In the Christmas story, the turkey gets destroyed by the who? The Bumpus Dogs. So where do they have their Christmas dinner? At the Chinese restaurant. And it's kind of like it's imperfect, but it's good and they have a good time. Why? Because they're with the family. Home Alone quite literally is about the family because the family literally comes home after leaving Kevin by himself. Uh, in the Santa Claus, which actually, you know what? If I had to crown a movie, the Santa Claus would be my number one. Um, a lot of you probably don't know. Okay, you agree with that. We have some Santa Claus fans in here. Tim Allen, or Scott Calvin, as he's known in the, in the movie, his ex-wife rips up the restraining order at the very end of the movie because so he, so he can what? Be with his son. Uh, in Elf, James Caan, you know, he realizes that his job isn't more important than his what? His family. Christmas Vacation is quite possibly the ultimate family movie because, of course, Clark Griswold is the ultimate family man. Um, it's a Wonderful Life is a big family movie. Christmas is about the family is what you'll hear a lot of people say today. Um, but that's not necessarily what you get in the scriptures, though. Uh, and, and, and let me explain. When the Magi visit Jesus, for instance, it says nothing about their families. It says nothing about them going home to reunite with their families. It just says what? They came to see Jesus. It says nothing about Herod's family or the families in the community. Actually, it does say a little bit about Herod's family. It doesn't say good things about Herod's family. In fact, it says that Herod does what to all the male children? He, he murders them. When Mary visits Elizabeth, so there's a family theme, her cousin, who is, uh, who's the mother of John the Baptist, it's not so much a family reunion as it is a chance for Elizabeth to sit in awe of Jesus and she calls Mary the mother of my Lord. When Mary sings her song of praise, she doesn't mention family. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. 
And of course, the shepherds, we know nothing about who the shepherds are. We don't know anything about their families. All we know is who they came to see and who they left praising, which is Jesus. Christmas in the Bible isn't family-centric. It's Jesus-centric. Now, that doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't place a value on family. In fact, the, the Bible has a lot of good things to say about the family. I could go on and on all night about how our culture diminishes the role of the family. But the logic of the Bible is that if we make much of Jesus, we have an everlasting family in the household of God. The Magi and the shepherds are family. And that's why Christmas movies, although they're great, and I love Christmas movies, I'll watch them today, I'll probably watch them tomorrow, even though they're awesome, they're only a shadow. They're only a glimpse of the beauty and the joy and the goodness of the true biblical Christmas story. If Christmas is just about being with family, then Christmas falls miserably short of the glory of God. In fact, it's the other way around. When we savor and enjoy the glory of Jesus Christ on Christmas, it makes our time with family all the more fulfilling. I think sadly today a lot of families think that Christmas is just about them, and they forget that a fam even the best family without Jesus is a hollow one. And so what do we do? We pray on Christmas. We read the scripture on Christmas. We talk to our kids about Jesus on Christmas. We worship with our family on Christmas. You know, we're going to read a passage tonight. It says, Mary treasured up all these things in her heart, and she did what? She pondered them. That's what we do on Christmas. We treasure the, the beauty and the miracle and the goodness and the joy of Christmas in our hearts. I think I told a, a, a story last year about my mom... Christmas at the Tides was about coming down, opening the presents, dad making the coffee, and mom making something that eventually we were going to eat after we did what we needed to do, which was open our presents. And I remember there's always this lull between when the presents are opened and when you have to eat. So it's like the, there's chaos. And I remember mom broke tradition one year, and she just laid a Bible down. She goes, okay, everybody's going to stop what they're doing, and we're going to read the Bible. And I know, I, I mean, I grew up in a, in a Christian family, but we didn't do that. And so mom was like, all right, I want everybody to sit around. We're going we're gonna to read Luke 2. And then my brother and I were like, we're going to read the Bible on Christmas. That's weird. That was the, that's the family I was raised in. It's not anything against my dad. It's not anything against my mom. But my mom, that year, she said, we're going to have a new tradition. We're going to make Christmas not about ourselves and about actually worshiping Jesus. And it was weird. And then I came to kind of like it. And then now, decades after, I go, you mom, you remember when you did that? She's like, oh, I remember it because y'all looked at me like I was an alien. I'm like, thanks, mom, for doing that. Let's worship Jesus on Christmas tomorrow. Let's actually worship the risen Lord. Let's actually do more than pray. Let's actually open up the Bible and treasure these things in our heart like Mary did. As I said earlier, the tides, before we get to our text, the, the tides are 
in the middle of a hardcore Polar Express extravaganza right now? Raise your hand if you've seen the movie Polar Express. Okay, only a select few. Um, Logan raised his hand as if it was begrudgingly. Um, but if I had to say, Polar Express is kind of like a secular Christmas version of Pilgrim's Progress. I don't even know if any of y'all even know what I mean by that. that. There's a lot of biblical parallels between Polar Express and the Bible. There are. For one, the whole point of Polar Express is what? You gotta what? You gotta believe. You gotta have faith. Never says what you gotta have faith in, but you gotta muster something. It's got its faith. Number two, there's a journey to be made to this celestial place, and the only way you can get there is to hop on this train. There's a central figure in the middle of this magical place named Santa who gives the gift of the Christmas Spirit. Come on now. There are thousands upon thousands of elves who surround this man whose sole job is to sing about him and to assist him in fulfilling his mission to the world. Am I the only one that sees this? Some of y'all are like, you're stretching it off, but I'm, I'm still listening to you. Santa's primary job is to bestow gifts to the world. And here's the huge golden tree in the middle of the city, in the beautiful tree which initiates the Christmas season. The parallels are striking. And it just goes to show you, it's, it's not, we're not here to bash Polar Express. What we are here to say is that even the best stories that we can tell the ones that we love to tell, the ones that we love to listen to, the ones that we love to watch year after year, they prove that what we really crave is what Jesus can give. Every sinner wants what Jesus has. Every sinner wants the biblical story. Every single sinner is desperate for the beauty and the glory of the gospel. And so as we read Luke chapter 2, we're going to do so very, very not going, to be a, not going to be a super long message tonight, but as we read, probably a one that you've all read before, read it with fresh eyes and come to it and read it like someone who's never read the Bible before. Read it as a love story. Read it as a Christmas story. Read it as, as something where there's a, there's a good guy, there's a bad guy, there's a mission to be fulfilled. As if God is doing something new and the world has yet to really understand what's taking place. So if, you, if you've got a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 8 through 21. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 21. And if you don't, we usually have it on the screen, but not tonight. So... Um, if you found it, stand for the reading of God's Word, if you will. This is a small tradition we have in Haynes Creek. And God says in His Word, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let's pray. Father, show, show us what it means this evening to glorify and praise you. Show us the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. You can be seated. For some reason, every time I read Luke chapter 2, I can't help but think of Charlie Brown Christmas. Here's, here's the summary. Here's what I'm going to try to say tonight. God's most beautiful, most complete revelation of Himself is in Jesus Christ, and His glory in Jesus Christ evokes our praise. The primary theme of this passage is pretty clear. Glory. That's it. It pops up. Probably four times. The glory of the Lord shines around the shepherds. The angels are giving glory to God in the highest. The shepherds behold the glory of God in the baby Jesus. And they return to where they came doing what? Glorifying and praising God, it says. Once again, when the angel shows up, what happens? People get scared. Why is it that everyone gets scared every time an angel shows up? Well, it's probably because God's glory is a little frightening. There's so much radiance and light from heaven. To be when, how often do we see in the Bible where the angel has to go, hey, don't be afraid. That's sheer glory, sheer radiant heavenly celestial light coming down. And people are like, oh. it's almost too much to handle. If you're like me, if you've been raised in the church, you've been around the church long enough, you hear that word glory so often that it kind of becomes a nebulous term. But I don't want to take for granted tonight when I say glory that we all know what it means or that we're all thinking of the same definition. John Piper defines glory as the radiance of His holiness, the radiance of His manifold, infinitely worthy and valuable perfections. Uh, Piper talks a lot about God's glory as nearly synonymous with His beauty. And I think that's there's something there. I think that in some ways... God's glory is more than just His beauty, it's His power, it's His goodness, it's His holiness. But I don't think we can understand God's glory without understanding His beauty. Psalm 96, 4-6 says this, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, for He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So beauty is a big part of God's glory. The Hebrew word kabod means weight. But I think we need to be careful in just maybe defining God's glory in one way. God's glory is the totality of his being. It's also his beauty. I think the concept of beauty can help us in understanding glory because a lot of people don't know what glory is, but a lot of people know what beauty is. You may not be able to define it, but you know it when you see it. Um, have you, here's, here's how I would describe it. Beauty is, in some ways, symmetry, proportion. 
But beauty is also, have you ever had something, have you ever experienced something that after you experienced it, you wanted to experience it again? Have you, ever, have you ever experienced something with your senses that you couldn't pull yourself away from? Have you ever listened to a new song that you couldn't stop listening to? Have you ever looked at an ocean? Most of us don't live next to the ocean. So have you ever been on a trip where you finally see the ocean and you're like, oh, and you just look at it there for a second? Have you ever seen a beautiful person, hopefully you, your spouse, and you couldn't take your eyes off of them? Have you ever read poetry or an article or you had someone, something someone written and you read it and you had to read it again? That's beauty. It's captivating. It's mesmerizing. It's something that draws you away from yourself and fixes your attention and your adoration. That is but a glimpse of what these shepherds are experiencing. And that is just a sample of the glory of God to be revealed at the end of times. But here on earth, thing, beauty doesn't last. How many times have you a new song came out and you just had to keep listening to it? And what happened after a month? It got old. And what did you do? You found a new song, unless it was a classic. After looking at it in an ocean, and you finally saw it, what, what happened? You kind of got used to the ocean. After seeing a beautiful person who was just simply stunning, well, if you hung around them long enough, sorry, maybe, I'm, maybe this is a bad one for, for our marriage. Um, <laughs> Maybe not as stunning. I don't know. Maybe I need to move on. <laughs> Something you read for the first time. Well, it got old. Well, God's glory never does that. God's glory is not like a song that got old. God's glory is not like a beautiful person who wasn't as ravishing anymore. God's glory never wears out and it never loses its splendor. On earth, God is giving us fading beauty so that, it can, so that we can long for the beauty that doesn't fade. And when Jesus comes to the earth, people can never get enough. The shepherds come home and they're still praising and glorifying God. The angels are still singing glory in the highest. And when the angels went back to heaven after talking to the shepherds, guess what they continued to do? Praise God. In heaven, the party never stops. The final lyrics to Amazing Grace, when we've been here 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. It's because God's beauty never fades. It's not, because, it's not like we're in heaven 10,000 years and we're like, wow, I, I wish we could be doing something else than praising God. No! God is just as beautiful after 10,000 years as He was the very first time we saw Him. And Jesus is giving us a glimpse of His entire ministry. He's saying, blessed are the pure in heart. For what? They will see God. When Moses, he's been walking with God, what does he say? I want to see your glory. The Christian life is about developing this taste for God where finally we've been walking with Him so long that we just have to tell God, I want to see you now. I have been next to people who are dying, people who are in a, in a hospital bed, people who are almost in a casket. 
And there's sadness, but there's also this excitement. They're like, I'm ready to see Him. That's what glory does. That's what beauty does. That's what these angels are coming down. That's why, that's what Mary is treasuring in her heart. God's glory has come to earth and it came to earth in a child so that the world could catch a glimpse of the glory in heaven. We are beholding the beauty of God. When we worship, when we worship God, when we sing His praises, when we sing songs, what we're doing is we're singing about the beauty of Jesus. We're meditating and praising Him for who He is. In order to worship God properly, in order to worship God the right way, God wants us to fix our meditations. He wants us to fix our ideas. He wants us to fix our eyes and our thoughts and our brain all on Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the most beautiful, supreme revelation that God has of Himself. One of the most awe-inspiring things to me on this earth is a mountain. I love mountains. There are mountains in Georgia. I just haven't seen them yet. I'm told they're pretty, though. Kentuckys are probably prettier. But moving on. Um, kidding. Actually, I, I actually lament the fact that I haven't been in the North Georgia mountains. Because every time somebody comes back, people are like, Bobby, you haven't been there yet. I know when I come to, to the North Georgia mountains, whenever that happens, I know I will come back and I'll just be like, why haven't I been there? I can't wait to see the mountains in this state. Because God has made mountains, the, the are they smoky mountains in Georgia? Is that Tennessee? Maybe. But God has made mountains in such a way that what, what, what do we do? We just go... Have you ever been on top of a mountain and you just did this for a couple minutes? And you just didn't need to say a thing. You just... And I think God creates those things so that we can look at His creation and go, wow, that's beautiful. And God can turn around and say, you think that is beautiful? Wait till you see the person who made it. God became man so that sinners could behold the beauty of His glory. We don't talk about the beauty of God, do we? When we think of beauty, we think about a person like, uh, like your wife or your husband. When we think of beauty, we think about a painting. When we think about beauty, we think about a landscape. But how often do we talk about the beauty of God? If you read the Psalms, you will hear about beauty all the time. And when we read Luke 2 and we read about how everyone is just just drop dead frozen looking at the glory of God, I think what they're seeing is stunning beauty. And, and we have to understand the glory of God if we're to obey Him because God doesn't ask us to obey Him without seeing His glory because seeing God's glory and knowing His glory, savoring His glory, relishing His glory, wanting God's glory is the very foundation of our obedience. It's like my wife. My wife, there are times where I don't want to obey and do what she says. Maybe sometimes more than others. But she's beautiful. I know her. It's not just her physical beauty. What When we get to know the person we're married to, we know their heart and their character. 
And the more we know them, the more we get to know them, the more we want to serve them. That's how it is in a relationship with the living God. God's goodness is beautiful. God's holiness is beautiful. God's love is beautiful. God's power is beautiful. God is beautiful. Tonight I wanted to end by saying that the Christmas season is full of a lot of beautiful things. Downtown, every time I go downtown Covington, I'm just thankful for how beautiful beautiful our town is. Oxford's got some stuff, I think. Maybe not. Does Oxford do anything? They have have a Christmas parade, I think. No? Back to Covington. We live in a really beautiful place. There are lights, strong... I mean, you just Christmas time just makes you love America, does it not? There's lights everywhere. There's candles. There's trees. There's decorations. There's smells. We got a Christmas candle going on right now. It makes, it makes I me... Mean, I just want... I, I want to taste vanilla when that candle's going on. We got wreaths. But let's not fool ourselves... There is no beauty that compares on this earth to the living God. In fact, every time we glimpse beauty, every time we perceive beauty on this earth, we should know and understand that God is only giving us a taste of what true beauty is, of His glory. And so think about when the shepherds come to this child and everyone in the room is just kind of looking at baby Jesus. And I believe, and Scripture says in John, that we beheld His glory. They beheld His glory when they saw Jesus Christ. So tonight, we are called to do exactly what the shepherds did. Behold and praise. Don't you dare try to worship God without contemplating who He is and what He's done in Christ. If you're not, you're doing it wrong. Because God wants Himself to be revealed in Jesus, and He wants what we see in Jesus to be ravishing. And He wants that to fuel our praise. Think about that this Christmas as you worship the living God. Think about that the next time you think of Jesus. And think about His beauty, and how that is supposed to transform your life, and how you tell others about Him, and how you worship Him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Father, you're beautiful, you are worthy, you are powerful, you are good, you are greater than everything we've ever known. There is nothing we could experience on this earth that compares with Father, we we humble ourselves tonight knowing that our King, Jesus, He came as the smallest child. He came as the most pitiful of of people. But Father, we know that that child was fully God. And we know that that child grew up and that he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Father, thank you for the gift of Jesus and thank you for showing us your glory in such a magnificent way by taking flesh and becoming one of us. 
stooping down to our level so that you could take something as inexpressible as your glory and convey it to something as minuscule as your creatures. And all these things we ask in your precious Son's name.